Buckaroo. Holiday. Buckaroo. Holiday. Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. Oh, wow. It's you again. How do I look in my tuxedo? It's not every day I get to celebrate the 10th episode of the Buckaroo Holiday Program. I don't know, do I seem a little pumped up? A little overenthusiastic? Guilty is charged because not only is this the 10th episode, but I can now confirm, according to this email that I've just received, that I've been invited to attend the Monetize Your Podcast webinar. What did I just say? Fucked if I know. It's words, just words, and words are all I have to steal your heart away. But when no one listens anymore, what are words worth? Words worth are a poet. Meanwhile, I'm required by law to tell you the following. Buckaroo Holiday is a no-holds-barred nudge cast, fluffing like a veritable SBD from Schoolyard Gents, a first-come, first-served scotch and charcuterie shack tucked away, tucked away, in a green, green alcove of espectacular Bayshore, New York. And I'm your host, Sport Murphy. Okay, one second. Okay, so, so I'm watching TMZ today, right? And it seems like the thing these days is discussions, you know, about Buckaroo Holiday. Go figure, you know, it's, it seems to be the thing these days. And um, one of the topics that keeps coming up in these discussions, apparently, is the whole obscurity thing. Now, I know that some people who do things like this, they strive for that. You know, they dig up all sorts of unknown stuff to play for listeners. You know, I don't really do that. I'm just really old, and I've accumulated all kinds of stuff through the years that I dig. It's like when you're hanging out with a friend and you play them a new discovery, and it's like, ooh, check this out, you know. But, like, most of what you listen to is familiar. You know, at least in your own circle, it's stuff that you tend to put on at parties or while you're hanging out because it's, you know, confirmed keeper stuff, you know? Some things become temporary favorites that you play a lot for a little while and then you kind of forget about them. Others are the evergreens. Numbers that stand up through the years and never seem to lose their vout. And, you know, there's other variations, of course. Neglected old favorites that you rediscover. Former objects of disdain that you that you've seen in a new light. Novelties, goofs, goof-offs, you know, hate listens. Some things you just ain't sure about. Stuff that you've just come across and are evaluating together. So if the idea here is to evoke the sublime sensations of an actual schoolyard gents hang, and God knows that's a consummation devoutly to be wished, eh? Then, you know, favorites must be included in our program. Oh, when you, by the way, when you think in the word program that I just said, picture it with two M's and an E, okay? Because this is hi-hat stuff here. Programma. So in this episode that I'm doing, uh, I'm going to do just that. You know, throughout the show, you'll, you'll know that a solid all-time favorite of yours truly is about to be or has just been played 
when you hear this helpful ID, prepared for us by the good folks at Jingles While You Wait. Sports, favorite music. Okay. Other things that may not be, quote, faves, unquote, but they just please me or I'm in the mood for them or whatnot, they'll be indicated thusly. Okay. Now, there might be a greater number of such things on this show than you can expect in the future because it's supplying a kind of running theme for this episode. But fear not. The main thing is always going to be the lesser-known work that I want to share. But uh, anyway, dipping a toe in isn't going to do, right? Let's just dive in and get used to it. Geronimo! Sports, favorite music...
So that ought to give you the general idea of what I'm talking about. That song you just heard was from 10CC. The Dean and I from their debut album in 1973. And that's a song that I like. I really didn't know it that well until pretty recently. But I like it. 10CC I run hot and cold on, but uh, that's a good one. And then before that was a song I love. Anita Baker with Sweet Love from 1986. That was her debut single. Big smash and deserved to be. One of the high spots in the 80s. We, the, the radio in the 80s was just shitty. I, there's a lot of good music, but most of it was independent stuff and off the beaten track kind of stuff. At the very end of the 80s, I remember sitting down and making a list of songs that were actual top 10 chart hits that I liked. And... Um, there weren't many. There weren't many. I, uh, I remember that certain artists I restricted to one single because otherwise they would take up the whole list, and uh, like Prince, for example. But uh, when it came to you know these one-off singles that impressed me, there were very few. There was that one, Don't Dream It's Over by Crowded House, Everybody Wants to Rule the World by Tears for Fears. You know, there were, there were some, but man, what a shitty decade. So when a song like that came on the radio, at the shitty job I had at the time, it was always... Very welcome, Anita Baker. And now to our more customary approach on Buckaroo Holiday, here's a song by Ned Rorum. Very early. 
from Tomita's 1974 album of WC arrangements for Synthesizer and Mellotron, Snowflakes Are Dancing. When that record came out, I was really struck by it. I never heard anything like the voicings and colors that he brought to these pieces. He didn't have any polyphonic synthesizers, so everything had to be done through editing and overdubbing. I think it holds up. Really good album. And before that was Ned Roram's Early in the Morning, describing an idyllic breakfast in Paris. I had a couple of those myself. And I'd have written a song like that about those mornings if I could write songs like that.
music Round, round, get around I get around, yeah Get around, round, round I get around my favorite record of all time man wow that's it now the track was cut on april 2nd 1964 same day as little honda if you can believe that man i had to mention that it was uh, brian carl dennis and al playing that there was a few wrecking crew guys playing saxes and piano but it was the boys it was the it was the wilson boys cut that track uh, man it's uh it's futuristic, and it? It's, it was futuristic in 1964 and still is today. It's kind of like the musical equivalent of a, one of them low-slung, aerodynamic, curvy, Hot Wheels sports cars with the you know, iridescent purple or green paint and the bubble dome, you know, the really cool ones. It's like that. It'll never change. It'll always be futuristic. Round, round, get around, I get around. You know, it takes this singable nonsense bit like the do-run-run, but it makes it into an ethos. I don't know. There's always a poignant feeling for me in that music. Even when I was a little kid, the part where he says, I'm singing, I'm a real cool head, it, it touches my heartstrings. And I later realized it was the chord changes that Brian wrote under that yearning high vocal. That's what did it. It doesn't relate to anything specific in the lyric. It's just a feeling. Making good bread is great, but it doesn't tug at the heartstrings. Another thing I love is the part where he's singing um, Never Missed Yet with the Girls We Meet. There's this leering, lustful vibe in the organ part. And you know, By the way, who hasn't felt a leering, lustful vibe in the organ part now and again? And we had the single of this back then, and you know what was on the other side? Don't Worry Baby. Think about that. One side of the record is Don't Worry Baby, the other side is I Get Around. It's a magical object, this wafer containing unfettered freedom on one side and 
pure love on the other side, endlessly accessible forever. Thank you, Brian Wilson.
Hello, Mr. Big Shot. Say you're looking smart. I've had a tiring day. I took the kids along to the park. You've become a stranger. Every night with the boys, got a new suit. That old smile's come back, and I kiss the children good night, and I slip away on the newly wax floor. I've become a giant. Every street, I dwarf the rooftops. I hunch back the moon. Stars dance at my feet. Leave it all behind me. Screaming, kids on my knee, and the telly swallowing. Trembling the roller skate floor. I see the buildings blazing with moonlight. In Channing Way, their very eyes seem to suck you in with their laughter. They seem to say. All right now, so stop a while behind our smile in Channing Way. Oh, to dive kisses. Ecstasies and charms. Pavements of poets will write that I died in nine angels' arms, and they all were smiling, still seductive as sin in their eyes. The man I.
Wow, is that little bit becoming uh, as annoying as I think it is? <laughs> Sorry, you know. Julian Cope referred to the godlike genius of Scott Walker on the double album Best Of that he compiled. And I ain't gonna argue. He stood apart, and every phase of his career is filled with amazing riches. When he died, everybody was writing all sorts of things about him, and there ain't much I can add. I'm really glad that his work finally achieved the recognition it deserved. And I'm glad that he was free to explore his wildest inspirations during the final decades of his life, because... Just because. That was a kind of a twofer there, because the one before that was the theme from To Kill a Mockingbird by Elmer Bernstein. And only he might pronounce it Bernstein. I don't know. But he's probably my favorite film score composer. He did a lot of stuff. Um, The Magnificent Seven... Great Escape, on and on. And that score to me is the most touching of all his scores and maybe the most touching score I've ever heard. It sobs, you know, the the climax of the song is just sobbing. You know, the film is magnificent, really a milestone. There's a version of it on Broadway right now that I, as I understand it, is pretty woke. I'll never know. Um, but uh, they use the film music. That's how uh, indelible it is. They use it in the play on the, on the ads. And why wouldn't they? It's perfect music. And the whole score sustains it. If you get a chance to hear the entire score album, all of it is absolutely beautiful and it works as a piece on its own. And what I started with there is not one of my all-time favorites, but I like it, so I could use that other good music tag. Why not? Good music! There you go. It's uh, Dennis Farnan, who was a composer of library music for the most part. There's some of his later work playing behind me right now. He also did some beautiful arrangement work, notably for some stuff with Phineas Newborn Jr., the piano player. Might play some of that someday. It's really nice. He did that for an album called Magoo and Hi-Fi, which was a Mr. Magoo cash-in, and they needed a B-side for the LP, so they, so he composed a series of pieces based on nursery rhymes, and that was one of them with Marnie Nixon singing. Marnie was a wonderful singer who was the most widely used ghost voice for actresses who didn't really have the singing chops. So Natalie Wood and West Side Story, etc., etc., Deborah Carr and The King and I, real legend. But that whole piece called The Mother Magoo Suite was later re-recorded for CD by, I forget whether it was the Bohunks or the Metropole Orchestra, but on Basta Records, it was a really nice remake of that whole side. There's something about the original always, of course. By the way, I neglected to mention that before you heard the Beach Boys track there, way back earlier in the show, you heard Gary Burton Quartet with a track called Response from a 1967 album called Duster, which has nothing to do with inhalants. Now, in other matters, I was chastised recently because I mentioned, I think in the last show, uh, Wigwam, the Finnish band, and I never got around to playing anything by them. So I'll correct that problem now. Sorry, Corman Boyle. Um, (laughs) 
All the members of the band were native to Finland, except for the lead singer and songwriter Jim Pembroke, who was British. They're another one of these bands that I like because though they could be grouped in with the prog groups, most of their stuff is very much song-oriented rather than composition or jam-oriented, I guess. This is from the album Nuclear Nightclub, 1974. The song's called Freddy, Are You Ready?
He tells me I'm pretty, and then I feel pretty. He says I make him happy, and that makes me happy. That's about as perfect a distillation of teenage yearning as I've heard. It ain't all about horniness and angst. You know, there's that transcendent innocence. And somehow Jerry Goffin had a direct line to the source, here abetted by soaring music from Russ Teitelman, who once gave me a really good cigar. Hope you don't mind the name dropping I sometimes do here. It's not bragging, just taking pleasure in recalling these uh, lucky brushes with greatness. I don't think Carol herself could have done any better than the music on that tune. The Cookies singing it, making it my favorite girl group record. My favorite girl groups were the Shirelles and the Shangri-Las, but this record is a pinnacle. Cookies were Brooklyn Girls, my Brooklyn, not this current version, which is about as interesting as Boston. The Cookies were also the Raylettes, Ray Charles background singers, and they also sang on a bunch of other records besides their own, but I never dreamed is sublime. Before that was a piece called Preludium by a German named Walter Hilgers. It's a piece for tuba sextet, if that don't beat all. Tuba sextet, so tender. You know, you picture these elephantine oompa, you know, but that was sweet. And the set began with Thin Lizzy, Got to Give It Up from the Black Rose album. Great album, just great album. When it came out, I chalked up a lot of the lyrics to Phil's yob tendencies, this preening belligerence that kind of put me off sometimes, as opposed to his tender side, the other side that produced all these lovely songs to his daughters and reflections on the conflicts of his life, such as uh, religious ties versus hedonism, growing up as a half-black American Dubliner. But this song here, it kind of splits the difference there between that tenderness and that belligerence, that tough guy bullshit. I've known enough junkies in my life and loved some of them, enough to recognize the intentional and unintentional honesty here. Like that business at the end about how he's waking up and it's wearing off. You know, they all say that. But he wasn't, and it didn't. And the great Phil it died way, way too young. That song kicks some serious ass, I think, though. Mainstream rock at its finest. Phil is like my Springsteen. I lift yet another toast to him tonight. And while I'm doing that, I'll give you another one about heroin. And then another one from Ireland. The first one is one of my all-time favorites. You know what that means. Sports. Favorites. Music.
Steely Dan was a futuristic literary dildo, and Pugwash is a euphemistic nautical blowjob. So consider what just happened to you, figuratively speaking. And my favorite all-time lyric is right there on Dr. Wu. All night long, we would sing that stupid song. And every word we sang, I knew was true. Marron. That's the lyric, man. That's the one. I don't know if Becker and Fagan knew they'd come up with a line so laden with significance. Any more than Jim Webb did when he wrote, you know, I need you more than want you, etc. These guys just hit a bullseye, whether they're aiming for it or not. And that Steely Dan line just goes someplace holy for me. The song it's in isn't chopped liver either. From the perfect album, Katie Lied, 1975. And just as Steely Dan is pretty much Walter Becker and Donald Fagan, Pugwash is pretty much Thomas Walsh. He's an Irishman, as I mentioned before, who's made album after album of exquisite pop music in a style that never seems retro to me, just sounds timeless as that of the 60s and 70s artists he seems to emulate. That one's called Without You. It's from an album, Silver Lake, came out about two or three years ago. It might remind some people of Micro Disney, which was another Irish band. The High Llamas were an offshoot of Micro Disney, and I've played them before. Maybe I'll play some Micro Disney next time. Just by the 
David Axelrod from the 1969 album Songs of Experience, one of two records he did that were based on the works of William Blake. That one was The Schoolboy, probably more lyrical than most of the stuff on those albums, which tends to be uh, rhythmically very heavy and intense. He was a producer, arranger, composer, not to be confused with the political whore who has the same name and shows up a lot on, I think, CNN, one of those one of those orify of political manipulation. This David Axelrod did a lot of arranging and production work for people like Lou Rawls, worked with a lot of jazz musicians, and did these strange albums through the late 60s and early 70s that were very funky, heavily orchestrated and arranged, very, uh, very unique. Very unique. How can you be very unique? Anyway. Years later, he was rediscovered by the turntablists, the hip-hop people, crate diggers. Part of Blake's poem is, uh, I love to rise in a summer morning when the birds sing on every tree. The distant huntsman winds his horn, and the skylark sings with me. Oh, what sweet company. But to go to school in a summer morn, oh, it drives all joy away. Under a cruel eye outworn, the little ones spend the day in sighing and dismay. Feel the same way about school. Miserable. The part of Blake's point is an entreaty to parents, maybe to let their kids be whenever possible, not allow the world to be shit their burgeoning joys, but experience a little bliss in childhood so that it carries them through their old age. I know that some people might take that as a contemporary type permissiveness. It's not really what it means, not precisely. Anyway, I'm, I was lucky to have parents who uh, helped to nourish all the beautiful things in me when I was small, and everything that school tried to beat out of me, they kept alive. Now that I'm looking down the barrel of old age and all that comes with that, and I have two kids of my own who uh, go through a lot of hell, the stuff my parents gave me becomes invaluable is actually recognized for the first time. It'll keep me going. So the first song you heard there was uh, Mike Watt, Piss Bottle Man. I had the great, great pleasure of interviewing him when he was touring for Contemplating the Engine Room, an album about, about his dad. This song's also about his dad, but it's from an album, Ball Hogger Tugboat, 1994. That song's about road trips and uh, the dad carrying a bottle to piss in, you know, on long stretches of the highway. My dad did the same. <laughs> My dad did the same thing. But I just uh, wanted to mention that interview because I was uh, doing some stuff for my friend Rich Black's punk zine under the volcano, and he assigned me uh, this interview with Mike Watt. I was very excited because I was a big Minutemen fan. When I got to the club and met him, he was carrying his own gear in. He was just uh, setting up in the dressing room. He told me that we wouldn't have too much time to spend because he had to get the show set up but actually uh, it went longer and then he told me to wait he had some kind of sound check or something to do because he wanted to continue and he came down and continued f for a real long time had a bottle of George Dickel that was given to him by I think Merle Haggard with whom he'd crossed paths the night before at some gig or another <laughs> The, the joy that he exuded holding this bottle of Merle Haggard's whiskey is very endearing. 
But he was great. He was, um, he jammed a cano. You know, he, there was no bullshit about Mike Watt. Real enthusiastic guy. Spoke very fondly of his friends, lost friends like Dee Boone and collaborators like Raymond Pettibon, the artist. Spoke of them with just wide-eyed wonder and respect and enthusiasm. Like I said before, real inspiring, like the kind of guy you meet and you walk away feeling younger, <laughs> somehow. And in between we had this snippet from the Civil War series by Ken Burns. That was the American folk song Shenandoah. One of my absolute favorite songs of all time. In fact, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, I use bits of Shenandoah in all kinds of stuff that I write. I mean, sometimes it's just a note or two, but in my head, it's from Shenandoah. And uh, I graft it into all sorts of things just because, um, I don't know, there's a spirit in that song that, uh, I don't know, it's me. My dad drove the car as we passed through the Shenandoah Valley when I was a kid, and it still thrills me to think about it. And we used to watch all these singers come on TV, the Ed Sullivan Show, and all singing Shenandoah. And I always associate those hambone baritone numbers with my dad. I can still hear him singing along with whoever, John, Robert Goulet, Robert Merrill, Jim Neighbors, whoever. I can still hear his voice clear as bell. And when he was a kid, he sang uh, in a choir in Ireland that backed up Paul Robeson. And I hadn't actually planned on this, just popped into my head now, but it seems obvious that I need to play something now. Of the many versions of Shenandoah that I love, Joe Stafford's version and others, my favorite has to be Paul Robeson's, who is uh, a great hero of mine despite several very strong reservations about some of his actions and beliefs. Nevertheless, uh, a great man, someone to admire, and an enormous talent. Have I told you this before? i played this before? I'm, a, I don't know. I've got a weird feeling. Anyway, that's part of the SYG experience, too, as some of my friends will tell you. And since I'm changing things on the fly here, I think right after that I'll insert what is my favorite song. I told you, I played my favorite record for you. I get around. But this is my favorite song after...
Out of respect for those two pieces of music, I eschewed my recurring little cue theme. But Sports. Music. The Things Our Fathers Loved was written by Charles Ives in 1917, based on music he wrote in 1905 for an instrumental piece that appears to be permanently lost, unfortunately. I first heard it when I was a teenager on a TV show called Amazing Grace, America in Song, which was a great performances episode anticipating the bicentennial. And it was an amazing program. It took us through colonial era music, 
through the spirituals, the cowboy songs, ragtime, all the elements of American music that led to more familiar forms. It really knocked me out, this show. In those pre-VHS days, I recorded the whole episode on cassette tapes to listen to right off the TV speaker. And at the end of these performances of all these incredible songs, there was a short section of art song. They did some of Copeland's Emily Dickinson numbers. And then the final song, if I recall correctly, was that song by Charles Ives, The Things Our Fathers Loved, sung by uh, Donald Graham, wonderful baritone. There couldn't be a more appropriate song at that point. I think there must be a place in the soul all made of tunes, of tunes of long ago. That's what the show was, and that's what the song itself is. When Ives wrote it, he knit together little fragments of songs like My Old Kentucky Home and various other pop tunes, hymn tunes, Civil War songs, etc., which is what he's known for, but he never did it quite so elegantly and in such a granular fashion. There are some fleeting little things that could belong to three or four different songs, and I think that's intentional, too, because he's drawing the connections between all these songs. What it says about music and about song and about America and about memory and about uh, legacy all these things that alone is if you listen to these shows you understand how much that matters to me but i also find it just exquisitely beautiful as music it has this sentimental accessible melody and these harmonies that are very ivesian but used in a way that are um, more accessible than is typical of a lot of his stuff for me it's like finding a hole in a fence and peeking in there and, and getting a glimpse of heaven and it's been that way for me for decades that recording was from an album that I bought almost immediately after seeing that show, and that's why it sounds kind of crappy. It was played incessantly for many decades, and for some reason it was recorded pretty quietly to begin with. So, um, you know, I apologize for the surface noise. There are other versions I could have played, but that's the closest one to Donald Graham's original performance, original to my ears. I think I'm blabbing even more than usual on this show, and I know that there's an almost complete absence of the novelty stuff that I often prepare. It's just not where I'm at lately. I don't know. I never wanted the show to become formulaic anyway, and I think the next show and some of the subsequent shows up there are going to be really different in format from what you're used to here. I'll always do this, but uh, I don't want to just till the same soil. I got to rotate my crops. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes you just got to, you know... You gotta just run that Sammy off twice. I'll take one. What does that mean? Never mind. Sonny, yesterday my life was filled with rain. Sonny, you smiled at me and really eased the pain. Now the dark days are done and the bright days are here. My sunny one shines so sincere Sunny one so true I love you Sunny Thank you for the sunshine you came Sunny Thank you for the love you brought my way You gave to me your all in all and now I feel ten feet tall, sunny one so true, I love you. Sunny, thank you for the truth you let me see. Sunny, 
from A to Z. My life was torn like windblown sand. Then a rock was formed when we held hands. Sunny, sunny one so true. I love you. So 
There's no question the band that I've seen the most live is NRBQ. I stopped counting around 30 times. We'd go see them anytime they showed up for many years. The same thing went for Kid Creole and the Coconuts, but I didn't see them nearly as many times as the Q. I wanted to play some Kid Creole tonight, but uh, I got sidetracked into some other things and I gotta pretty much wrap this up soon. But that was Things to You from the album Kick Me Hard by the great, great NRBQ at their near peak incarnation. I think most people would agree. Before that, it was the Heath Brothers doing a Duke Ellington song, Warm Valley. We also had the Flamin' Groovies, When I Heard Your Name. And that all started with Bobby Hebb's Sunny, an immortal song. You heard Bobby Hebb, I think, in the last show, or the one before that, doing a slightly later and far more obscure song. Sonny was a colossal smash and everybody covered it. And yes, we are reaching the end here. If I don't finish it, it's going to be even longer before I put it up for you to listen to. Which is kind of ridiculous for me to say that because you're listening to it now and if you... etc. I want to round it out tonight with some uh, more recent music. The first thing is actually almost brand new, which is unusual for me. I don't want everybody to think I'm some stodgy old boomer stick in the mud playing old favorites. I got a message from my old friend Jenica the other day. I facetiously attributed a request to her on the last show, but this was an actual message from the actual Jenica, and she sent me a picture of the insert card from a mixtape I made for her many, many years ago. It's kind of shocking how many of the tunes on there were things that I have played on the Buckaroo holiday, and so I've included even more of them on this show just goes to show you but my listening hasn't completely stopped i do listen to new things here's one this guy uh, thundercat he's been involved with everybody from suicidal tendencies to kendrick lamar and though you won't find me voluntarily listening to either of those acts i do kind of like this stuff it's very dense full of ideas to a fault sometimes but this is pretty cool I think this came out in January. It's called Black Qualls. I'm going to go from there into a song that uh, is beloved by my family. I guess this is from about uh, 2004, which means it was already an established standard by the time my kids reached Compass Mentis stage. Anyway, they were very fond of it, and so am I.
Somewhere Only We Know. Huge hit. My son Miles sang it in a school talent show when he was just a little guy. My eyes still well with tears thinking of him and how beautiful that version was and how much guts he had to get up there and sing it in front of all those kids. But anyway, I'm going to call it. That'll be it for another Buckaroo Holiday. I'm going to play one more song before we go. Oh, I just want to mention a couple of things. There's a few things I forgot. One thing I've been meaning to mention for a long time, if you listen to the very first episode, you remember me discussing this guy, J.I. Rodale, 
who wrote that ridiculous book, The Glossaries. Yeah, I mentioned that he had written a play called The Harry Falsetto. A little while after that podcast, Willie Liguri was out here to visit, and he brought me a copy of the script to the Harry Falsetto. I don't know how the hell he found it. Turns out it was a school play based around Red Riding Hood, a courtroom kind of a thing. And my kids had actually performed a version of this when they were in middle school, I think. Pretty weird. So thank you, Willie, for that. Answered that bizarre question. And uh, in newer news, my friend, fellow corpsman, Professor Joseph Beale, who's the head of the Gotham Philosophical Society. True, true, he really is. They're trying to encourage the appreciation, understanding, and practical application of philosophy in New York's schools and various other public institutions. They do great stuff. All these really interesting talks and seminars and events. And he told me just the other day, after listening to the buckaroo holiday in which I taught you how to make a buckaroo, that he applied the same techniques to a cocktail that he enjoys, rye and ginger ale. Put the Angostura bitters in there, and I assume the crushed ice. I'm, I'm going to assume that the crushed ice also packs the glass, but he didn't specify that. But he did say the Angostura bitters just made a whole new thing out of it, and he's christened his drink the hoedown as a tip of the hat to Buckaroo Holiday and the Aaron Copeland piece from which it takes its title. Buckaroo Holiday is one of the movements of the ballet suite for Rodeo, and Hoedown is the final movement in that ballet suite, just so just so as you know. So thank you, Joe, and I'm going to make myself one of those drinks, and I'll give you my verdict on the next show, maybe. On one of them. So I'm going to end tonight with another song that I really dig a lot. It features the memorable voice of General Johnson. He did a lot of solo records, but was better known as the lead singer of the Chairman of the Board. Did that song, Give Me Just a Little More Time, such like. Before that, he was in a band called The Showmen, did a great record called It Will Stand, and others, including this one, Our Love Will Grow. Thank you for listening to Buckaroo Holiday this week. Stay healthy, stay happy. Please come back next time. Love you. Bye. Oh, oh, oh.
Parental guidance suggested. 